Our carol service is almost coming to an end. We have one more uh, carol that we'll sing together. I'd like to share with you just for a, a few moments, for ten minutes maybe, and then we'll sing that final carol. We've been thinking about risk here at Burlington over these last few weeks in December. And we've been seeing how God took the most incredible, the most unimaginable risk in coming to earth himself as a tiny, vulnerable baby. Unlike God, we are generally risk-adverse. If possible, we avoid taking risks. And as a society, we go to greater and greater lengths to foresee any potential hazards and make sure we're ready for them. To such end, the US Federal Aviation Administration has developed a unique device for testing the strength of windshields on aeroplanes. The device is a gun that launches a dead chicken at the plane's windshield at exactly the same speed as the plane would normally travel. The theory is that if the windshield doesn't crack from the impact of the carcass, then should an aeroplane hit a bird in mid-flight, everything would be okay. Very reassuring, don't you think? The British were suitably impressed with this particular test and asked if they could borrow the chicken gun to test a windshield on one of their brand new high-speed locomotives that they were developing. So they borrowed the FAA's chicken launcher, loaded the chicken and fired. The chicken went through the air like a ballistic missile, shattered the train's windscreen instantly and hardly slowing down, this poultry pellet ripped through the engineer's chair, smashed the instrument panel and embedded itself in the back wall of the cab. The British were stunned. They get on the phone immediately to the FAA to check that everything had been done in proper order. Following a full review, the FAA made only one recommendation. Don't use frozen chickens. (laughs) The lengths we go to to avoid risk. Meet three men, maybe more, maybe less, the wise men who took an incredible risk. Who were these guys really, these mystery men from the East? Well, the Bible calls them magi, a word that is, expresses a kind of combination of a, an astronomer, a scientist, a doctor, a philosopher. Here then were very wise, very learned people from the East, well-educated, well-heeled, people of influence and respect in their world. They were rich and powerful, guys that had it all, people who were at the top of their game. The world was theirs for the taking, their life for the living. But for all their wealth and wisdom and power, they were restless. Restless for answers, searching for meaning, meaning for their lives and for their world. For all that they had, it simply for them wasn't enough. They were looking for something more. And so determined were they to find that something more that they prepared to risk everything in order to get it. When they saw the star, they set off. Where did they set off from? We're not told, only that it was in the east. Was it Persia, India, China? We don't really know. What we do know is that wherever they were coming from, they would have to cross the Middle Eastern desert. A journey of about four to six months. So wherever they were coming from, this was a year-long round trip at the very least. 
So forget about the idea of the shepherds arriving in the morning and the wise men popping in just after lunch. This was a mammoth journey. They risked it all to get to the stable. They left everything. That's why I say these guys were risk takers. They left their families, their jobs. They gave up their influential positions in society. They gave up their life of privilege, their friends and associations, and hit the road, or quite literally the desert, to follow a star. They placed the whole of their reputation, their careers and their livelihood on reaching for something in the distance. Such was their burning longing for something more. And why? Because despite all that they had, they knew there was something. They knew there was something more, something better, something they needed that all their wealth and influence and power could not give them. Reminds me of a story that Jesus told about a merchant who was always looking for a really fine pearl, the biggest, smoothest, shiniest, the mother of all pearls. And one day he found it. It was incredibly expensive, but he was desperate for it. Now that he'd seen it, he couldn't imagine not having it. Life without that pearl seemed to him just meaningless. So Jesus says he sells everything. He gathers all that he's got, sells it all, that he might gain that pearl of great price. What would be your pearl? What for you is the one thing that if you knew it was true, if you knew you could have it, that you would go for? What would you take a risk for? What would be your pearl of great price? For many, the pearl of great price would be the knowledge that they are loved. Many of us live with the nagging doubt that if the chips are down, if it all goes belly up and our backs are against the wall, we live with this nagging doubt, would people still then really love me, really love me? For others, the pearl of great price would be the the knowledge that their lives count for something. That when the final chorus is sung and the credits roll, that their life mattered, that their life made a difference. For others, their pearl of great price is to find meaning. Meaning in who they are, where they've come from and where they are going. But each of these needs, of course, points to something deeper. For each one of us, surely the pearl of greatest price would be to discover a significance beyond ourselves. Because like those wise men, we too are discovering that even if everything of this world could be ours, we would still be yearning for something more. These men had it all, and it wasn't enough. Most of us don't have it all, but we spend our lives wishing that maybe we did. We live with the if only. We foster amongst ourselves this idea that if only we could get all our ducks lined up in a row, then everything would be all right and my deepest needs inside would somehow be met. So we spend enormous amounts of energy and time in getting the right ducks in the right row in the belief that if they all lined up, if we managed that new move, if we did get that promotion, if we achieved stability in this relationship or that, if we found financial freedom, if we got the kids off to college, if only, if only, if only, when, all these lined up, all will be well. I tell you, that's a really hard, really hard way 
to live. Because in this broken world, it's my experience and I get the inside track on people's lives every week of my working life, it's my experience that people hardly ever get their ducks all lined up. It's exhausting, a really hard way to live. There is, though, something worse. Worse is actually getting all your ducks in a row and discovering you still haven't found what you were looking for. Imagine getting to the top of your game only to discover it didn't really meet that need deep inside. Imagine getting to the top of whatever ladder is yours only to discover it was leaning against the wrong wall. These guys from the East are a reminder that even getting to the top of your game, even being at the top of your ladder, doesn't answer life's deepest longings. All their ducks were lined up, and still they were restless. Still they were looking to the stars, searching, looking beyond themselves for something more. Hey, we don't really need the wise men to tell us this, do we? Every week in our newspapers, our TV headlines, our celebrity magazines are full of people who have all that this world gives. They've made it to the top of their game, but still not found what they're looking for. This last week, Amy Winehouse, in a year where she'd achieved it all, she will be remembered for a life so empty and so desperate. One of life's defining moments happened for me a few months ago. In September, I had the privilege of joining a team of business leaders to visit some of the poorest parts of Mozambique. For three days, we camped right out in the country where hundreds of thousands of people live, quite literally off the map. When we got back to Joburg Airport and were waiting for our transfer flight to Heathrow, I looked at the maps in the bookstore and where we had been was not even recorded. But they're there, hundreds of thousands of people living a desperate existence. I can't really paint in such a short space of time what it's really like there, but just a few things. One in five people have already lost their life from AIDS, which is uh, ravaging the country out of control. Collecting water is the dominant activity of every single day. Five out of the last seven years has seen drought. It's desperately hot. We were there in early spring and the temperatures were in the mid-30 degrees centigrade. So imagine for a moment our lives in these conditions. Imagine if here in Ipswich, just for a few months, the temperature in the middle of the day had not been below 35 degrees centigrade. Just one day like that and we're miserable, aren't we? as miserable as sin. Imagine that day after day, but add to that the fact that every one of us would now have to walk into the centre of Ipswich to collect our water. And the water that we would have for all our needs that day was simply the amount of water we could manage to carry home by ourselves. And on top of that, imagine if one in five had already lost their lives to a disease sweeping the country. That's one in five in your pew. That's at least one, if not two people, in every pew in our church this evening. Look down your pew, one in five. How would we be feeling here in Ipswich? What would be the dominant emotion? What would be the general mood in our homes and in our schools and in our places of work? And how would we respond to a visit from people in a far-flung country 
who are enjoying life without any of these hardships, who are coming to have a look at the way life is for you? What kind of welcome, I wonder, would we give them? When we arrived in a village off the map in Mozambique, where we would stay, the whole village came out to meet us. There was singing and dancing. There was clapping and cheering. Young men were talking, women dancing, children playing. The joy was incomprehensible. My job on the team was to offer some kind of spiritual input. So the first night I was asking the question, are these people really this happy? It was a question I asked over and over again. I simply couldn't believe that these people in this situation could be that happy. But everywhere we went for those days, there was singing and there was dancing. On the Sunday, we went to church where I would preach that morning. There was more joy packed into that little mud church than you get a whole year's worth of church in our country. And I preached feeling totally inadequate in the face of such triumph. And then we left, and the whole church community formed a line outside the church to shake our hands. And I'm still there asking the question, why are these people so happy? And one of the guys on the team with us said to me, you know, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, why are these people so happy? The question is, why are we so sad? Why are we so sad? I will never forget standing in the midst of such joy in such a desperate place with a group of guys and girls with me who in the main had all that this world offers, people who were at the top of their game, and yet it was burning in my soul that we were the sad ones. You can have all that this world gives and still have nothing but you can have nothing and find absolutely everything. Man does not live by bread alone. We were never meant to live this way. Why are they so happy? Well, actually, they answered that question for us every single day many times, although I was a bit thick to understand at first. Just like in our churches, they would sing the same songs and you'd go to a new place and you'd think, I've got no idea what the words are, but I, I recognise that tune. And after a, a few times of hearing the same refrain, what are you singing? Someone tell us in words we can understand what you are singing and dancing to. Remember, one in five have died, dragged five out of the last seven years, penetratingly hot, every day is dominated by the collection of water, clean if they are very fortunate. Yet in the midst of that, this is what they sang. Blessings and good things happen here because of Jesus. There off the map in Mozambique, they had discovered the something more. The wise man had all that this world gives, but it wasn't enough. We have much of what this world gives, but it isn't enough. We are as restless, as joyless, as anxious as ever we have been. So the Magi took the risk of letting go of things that maybe they had held so tightly in their lives in order to reach for something more. And there in Bethlehem's manger, they found their risk 
rewarded. In this world, these men were on top, but there in that stable, they knelt and they worshipped and they offered their gifts. Their search over peace at last. They might have lost everything, but they had gained so much more. Will you take the risk, maybe, of letting go of some of the things that you hold to so tightly in order to take hold of the one who offers so much more? Like them, our risk will be rewarded. They went home a different way. They also went home as different people. And so can we. Jim Elliott, a missionary who lost his life, such was his passion to share this message with others, said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. No fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose.